Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Women. 1 Peter 3 says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Hardest command to follow in the entire Bible. Understand a woman is what he's saying. I had a friend say to me that I can't understand my wife. She's too temperamental. I said, what do you mean? He said, 90% temper and 10% mental. Good thing his wife didn't hear that. Not a good sentence to write down, gentlemen. When God got together with himself and the Trinity got together and talked it over, and they said, let's, let's make man and woman, male and female, in our image, both equally made in the image of God, no relative value, both of equal value, of equal worth, but both designed uniquely so that the fullness of God could be revealed more completely. So that in God's design of husband and wife, which is being so terribly challenged in our culture today, in God's design, there was the idea that there was to be a male and a female, a male being fully masculine, a woman being fully feminine, coming together in the unity of marriage, and the sex act being a symbol of the way they come together. I'm not trying to be in any way crude or inappropriate here, but the man becomes strong and enters. The woman does something very different that reflects God so that when they come together, not just in the sex act, when they come together in the relationship and they live as male and female, the point of God is that the kids would take a look at mom and dad and say, so that's a picture of God. Not just the Christ church relationship, which of course is very important in Ephesians 5, not just that the man loves his wife as Christ loved the church, not just that particular teaching, that's foundational of course, but even more foundational is that a man and woman come together and there's a picture of God that comes out of that that the watching world, particularly the children, can see. So my kids, we have two sons, our two sons are meant to get a picture of God as one who moves into situations never threatened to reflect all that he is for the well-being of that person into whose life he's moving. And do my kids see a picture of me doing that as I move toward my wife, or do they see me hollering at her for telling me to turn left here? In Exodus 3, is it Exodus 3, where God says, maybe it's 2, where God looked down on the Israelites who were in bondage in Egypt, and the Bible says, and somewhere in Exodus 2, I think, God remembered his covenant with the Israelites after 430 years of bondage. The word for remember is the same word as male. God remembered that he had made a covenant and he went into action and moved. That's the essence of masculinity. So whenever I back away from a situation, when my wife says to me, as she did a week ago, honey, this big jar of iced tea, um, it's really heavy. Would you carry it downstairs to the refrigerator? And the first memory that flew into my mind was a year ago when she asked me to carry some big jar and I tripped. And the iced tea went all over the place. The glass shattered. And it was like, jeez, you know, and I cleaned it up. 
And it, it really happened just this way. After I cleaned up the mess that I made with the iced tea thing, big jar smatters, splattered and glass all over the place. After I cleaned it up, she said, well, I hate to ask you this, but I have this big casserole. Would you carry that down? And I carried it down, and I slipped on the iced tea that I hadn't cleaned up and spilled that. <laughs> and then she says, a year later, would you carry this down? My first thought was, I don't want to. <laughs> and even little tiny issues like that, let alone the real big issues of life, spiritual leadership, etc., and even little issues like that, am I willing to say, yeah, or am I going to back away from where I fear I can't handle it? Masculinity. Femininity. Male and female. What's the word female mean? And again, let me just give you what the words mean, and, um, and I hope you hear the, the, the richness as opposed to what might seem to some of you like the indelicacy of it. The word female literally means an opening. An opening that can be entered. When Joash was king of Israel, of Judah, actually, the southern kingdom, and he was getting all zealous for God, and he went to the high priest Jehoiada, and he said, we need to get money to rebuild the temple. So Jehoiada made a, made a big box, like an offering plate. It was a big box. And he put an opening in the top of it, and the word for opening is the same word for female. So you start hearing that, and you go... What's that all about? Is there something about womanhood that's revealed when Sarah, we're told in 1 Peter 3, Sarah was given as an example of womanhood to the wives in 1 Peter 3, where Peter says, don't ever define womanhood in terms of external things, your hairdo, your clothing, your attractiveness, your figure. Um, nothing's wrong with all those things. They don't define womanhood. Womanhood is a deep matter of the soul. And then Peter goes on to say, a woman is somebody who has a, and if she wants to attract her husband so that she can be entered into the opening that she provides for her husband to come in and to be nourished and surrounded by her love and her gentleness and her tenderness, if that's going to happen in a relationship between a man and a woman, the woman will be meek and quiet. Now let me tell you, don't misinterpret that. Our Lord was spoken of as the meekest man that ever lived. So this is not some wimpy little mousy, you know, Edith Bunker type thing where you just, whatever you say, dear. I mean, that's not it. My wife is anything but that. I mean, she's, you know, my nickname for my wife is the DU, which is the director of the universe. Um, and she can handle anything, directions of the pizza place and everything else. Um, I think my wife is very submissive if you define submissive properly. Submissive doesn't mean just whatever you say. So submissive is a word in the Greek, hupotasso, which means to arrange yourself in line with a larger purpose. That's all it means. So my wife aligns herself for the larger purpose of bringing glory to God by being all that she is as a woman. By giving me all that she is as a woman. doesn't mean being meek and quiet in the bad sense. It means being meek. Jesus being meek means that all of his power was under his control toward a given end. That's meekness. And the word quiet simply means that you're not just blowing off everything that comes into your mind, but that you're actually choosing what to release for the sake of another. A meek and a quiet spirit is the exact opposite of what Proverbs says when 
the writer of the Proverbs says, when women are vexing and contentious, it drives a guy crazy. There's a verse that says, a man would rather be in the corner of a roof than in a house with a contentious woman. What's contentious mean? The word contentious could equally well be a chance to get an umpire, referee, go to a basketball game. There's 10 players in the court and there's three officials, referees, umpires. What's their equipment? A whistle. Every time a man hears a wife go, he wants to kill her. A man would rather be in the corner of a roof than with a woman who goes, you're not doing it right. May I share with you how you do it right? Turn left here, honey. <laughs> a contentious or a vexing woman. And the proverb goes on to say that a man would rather be in a desert. Been the roof of a house isn't far enough away. A man would rather be in a desert than with a vexing woman. What's a vexing woman? When the man doesn't cooperate, she lets him know. That's vexing. I, I told you how to raise a kid. You're just not handling it right. Can I, I point it out again to you? As opposed to saying, I'm someone who can be entered. I'm someone who has, now listen carefully to this, a woman speaking. I'm someone who has a deep feminine spirit, meaning I want to be given the privilege of giving you what is richest within me to help you feel alive as a man. That's what I want to give you. And I'm not going to seal myself off. I'm not going to close the opening. I'm going to receive you. As I mentioned yesterday, I think my wife has had four years of sexual abuse history. Eight to 12, met her when I was 10, didn't know about it. First date, literally, 12, married at 21. It wasn't until 18 years, I think I mentioned yesterday, that she shared with me her history of sexual abuse. We went away after 26 years of marriage to a, our marriage was getting stagnant, so we went away for a week to get to know each other after 26 years of marriage. And we, for a week, talked to each other about our souls. It was a very spiritually forming experience for us. We asked this question, we said, and this can be done in other settings besides marriage, but they asked, we asked the question, in the first five years of each of our lives, who most influenced me for God and who most influenced me for the devil? From ages six till 12, you know, late childhood, same question. Who in these years was the person that God most used to touch my heart and who was the person the devil most used to touch my heart badly? Adolescence, 12 to whatever, 18, 20. And then we went through our, the various places we had lived in our 26 years of marriage and who was God most used? And Rachel... I don't think I've ever found her more feminine during those five days. She opened her heart to me. And she told me in greater detail about the abuse. She told me in greater detail about what she felt like. She let me know exactly who she was and all that was within her. And it wasn't just, just the sweets and, you know, the stereotypic sweet thing. It was, let me give you the fullness of who I am. And I, and I want to give it to you because I want to present this to you as a gift. This is your woman, and you may enter me and know all that's happening in my soul. And I want to give it to you. And she shared with me all that had gone on. And um, she shared something she was really scared to share. She told me a story that I'd never heard before until 26 years into our marriage when we were talking about the first five years of our life, who most influenced us for God versus who most influenced us um, on behalf of the devil. 
She said, you know, in my first five years of life, the person who most influenced me for God was a man, and she was afraid to tell me the story, but she told me, and she's been open about it now, so I'm breaking no confidences. She and I speak together often, and she tells the story of when Uncle John, who was just a neighborhood bachelor in his 40s, lived with his sister, um, these two single folks, brother and sister, lived together. And this Uncle John was just a wonderful man. This is a good story. A wonderful man who just loved little kids in a very wholesome, healthy way. And he just noticed this cute little three-year-old, four-year-old girl named Rachel, and he just uh, wanted to bless her. And he just got to know her a little bit. They were neighbors. And he discerned that little Rachel just loved the flower violets. And so what he would do in York, Pennsylvania, where Rachel lived as a child, Every spring, when violets grew wild in the local golf course area, Uncle John would come to 531 Springsbury Avenue, where Rachel lived as a little kid, and go to Rachel's mom, Helen Langford, and say, Hi, Helen, can I take Rachel down to the golf course to get some violets? And her mom knew she could trust John, Uncle John, so Rachel would get all excited, little girl, you know, and he'd pick her up and put her on his shoulders, and you can picture the warmth of this, and take her down to the golf course and get off his shoulders and pick her little bouquet of violets with all the excitement of a child and back on the shoulders and back home. And Rachel told me that story. Why was she afraid to tell me that story? Why would that be hard for her to tell me that story? Any women have a guess? She's giving me a chance to hurt her. She's let me know how deeply she can be touched. She's let me know about something that touched her soul very, very deeply. Somebody was profoundly interested in her, entered her opening, discovered her love for the flower of violets. I didn't know that for 26 years of marriage, how much she liked violets. She still does to this day. She keeps dried violets in her, in her Bible all the time. I didn't know it. And as she shares with me, Here's a story when I was just a little girl of this wonderful man who entered my soul, who discovered what, what beauty means to my, my soul that just desires beauty beyond myself. And he actually saw that and responded to it by moving into me. And Larry, you've done that in many ways, but some ways you haven't. And as I tell you this story, it'd be so hard for me if you went, huh, how about that? Next story. And I'm afraid you might do that because you've proven yourself capable of that. And she said that to me too. Because that's giving your soul to your husband. What's spiritual formation look like as a male and female? Just a couple of passing thoughts. Do as you like with it. Now, think about this. Where are you in your journeying reality right now in your red dot in comparison with what would it be like to be fully alive as a man, fully alive as a woman, unthreatened because of Christ, able to give all that you are as a man to move into situations where you feel incompetent, but by the power of God, you know you're called to move into it, and so you do. As a woman, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm scared because I don't want to give you the power to hurt me, so I'm going to defend myself and keep my distance, and I'm going to be in control, and I'm going to make things happen, and I'm going to be totally in charge of things, as opposed to, no, I'm, I'm going to be the kind of woman that, that will let you see the beauty that's in my soul that Christ has put there, and as I let you see that, you could take advantage of it. But I'm going to do that for the glory of God. Anybody close to this versus where you are? At my best, I'm probably about here. I'm pretty often pretty far away. Maybe I resemble Hitler more than I do Jesus. I've got a long way to go into becoming fully a man. So do you as men and women. 
Do you ever feel that progress in the Christian life, I know you're young, but do you ever feel that progress in the Christian life is a little slower than you'd hoped? I mean, some of you have been saved for a year or two, some of you since you were little kids. I've been saved, like I said, 52 years. I thought I'd be further ahead <laughs> than I am now. I can still just snip at my wife. <laughs> she was out last night on a real errand of mercy. She just has a heart as big as a barn and just loves people. She's wonderful. And she was out doing something for somebody the way she almost always does. And, and um, I was home and I'd been working and it got past dinner time. And um, thought she'd be home around 6. It was 6.30, quarter to 7. And I'm a little hungry and I, I have no idea what to do in the kitchen. I, you know, she's not there, I have cereal. Um, and I put on the Republican convention. I wanted to see what was going to happen. And, and she calls on the way home for this thing and she wants to talk on the phone all the way home. And I just wanted to get home, make dinner, and I want to watch the television. Why was there... I had to work at this last night. It was a real struggle. I, I, I want to be spiritually formed. I, I, want to, I want to say that as a man, I can move into my wife's life. I can give up worrying about my stomach. I can give up watching their convention. I got a woman to bless. Why is there a battle going on in my soul? Why is there a battle going on in your soul that you often lose? Well, let me talk about the next part of this little chart that I want to develop for you. Let me tell you what's behind the fact that you're here and you're not where God designed for you, just like me. What's behind the fact that your red dot does not reflect all the maturity that you'd long to be in your feminine or masculine souls? There's a problem here. What's the problem? What does this FD stand for? I think I might have mentioned yesterday, I forget if I did, that seven years ago I had cancer. And I'd been sick for four years, and the major symptom, forgive my saying this obnoxious word, the major symptom was profound diarrhea. And my doctor assumed I had picked up a bug in Manila or Russia or someplace, and for four years treated me for a bug I never had, with all sorts of medication that messed up my stomach. He never diagnosed until four years later what the core problem is as to why my red dot was miserable when I wanted to be healthy. I never diagnosed what the real problem was until finally one night I was so sick that a prayer team from our church came over as I was lying in bed just writhing in agony for four years, not only with diarrhea but also dehydration profoundly and Rachel rushed me to the hospital probably 50 times in those four years to get rehydrated. And um, I was really sick in bed this night and our Sunday school class sent a prayer team over and I was just lying in bed writhing in agony and they just they began to cry seeing how sick I was and they were praying for me for you know God to do something second prayer team came in about 11 o'clock at night a good friend of mine with two other people and a good friend's a physician a woman a marvelous doctor and she's just a buddy she wasn't my physician but she's a doctor and a wonderful one and she came in they were praying for me in the middle of the prayer time <laughs> I said gangway I had to this time throw up and I went to the bathroom and threw up and the doctor said something that only a doctor will say this is ahead for you probably she looked at me and she said do you mind if I examine your vomit you want to be a doctor she went and she came back and she said it didn't take more than a second of examination it's full of blood you're in big trouble get to the hospital this minute went to the hospital and they finally did a CAT scan the doctor came in and said we found a big mass on your stomach and we're 99% sure it's malignant 
and we're going to open you up in two days and pull it out. And they pulled it out, and it was cancer. Four years of my being here and making no progress to health because I didn't recognize nobody knew what the real problem was in my body. One of the reasons a lot of Christians don't make much progress is they don't realize what's the real problem in their soul. Question, what's wrong with you? Y'all know the right word, sin. What's that mean? Now think about this. Let me ask you a trick question. You'll know it's a trick question when I ask it, but just think about it. How would you respond reflexively when I ask you this question? Tell me what pops into your head immediately. Don't reflect deeply. Just a quick answer to the question. When's the last time you sinned? Where's your mind go? We're not looking for confession time here. You know, if you killed somebody last night, tell me privately. Uh, when was the last time you sinned? Where, do, where does your mind go with that? Pardon? Today? All right. And what would be, what, what, what kind of category? I'm not looking for specifics here necessarily, but what kind of category when you think of the word sin and you go, yeah, today, but I mean, it's only quarter to 11. You've only been up for four or five hours. You've already sinned. What's the matter with you people? remember my eight-year-old son some years ago came up from school one day, a little private Christian school. He came in the door. He said, Dad, guess what? I haven't sinned all day. I'm trying to wonder what was the sins he's been committing on previous days that he wasn't committing on this day. Um, what's his category for sin? But if you've sinned today, what, is it, what does the word sin mean? How do you think about the word sin? There's something wrong. And what I'm going to, this FD, what I mean by this is flesh dynamics. Flesh dynamics. I'll explain that in a bit. But what's the word sin mean? When you think of the word sin, we're all sinners, saved by grace, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Jesus Christ died on the cross, took the payment for our sins. Have you ever felt like your problem with sin just is not that big a deal? I have. I was raised in a Christian home. You know, I, I forget what I said to you yesterday, but I, I, I just haven't done a lot of bad things. I, I've never had sex outside of marriage. I've been faithful to my wife these 38 years. I, I don't watch porn, never have. Never been drunk a day in my life, except one day when my wife and I were visiting a winery in California. I had about 20 bottles lined up for sample, and I've never been to one before, and we weren't supposed to drink all, of, all the way down, and I just... <laughs> You know, and I walked out of that thing half an hour later. And I said, "I don't feel so good." And she said, "You're drunk." <laughs> That's my one time of being drunk. No affairs, no alcoholism, no pornography. Don't cheat on my income tax. I mean, folks, I'm, I'm Pat Boone. You know, I'm just a good guy. Sorry, Jesus had to die for you. For me, it wasn't such a big chore. you ever feel like that? I mean, I'm really a good guy. I've worked very hard as a father. When my kids were born, I determined I was going to be very involved teaching the Bible. That's not my youth pastor's job. That's my, that's, that's, that's my job. Youth pastor can help. That's great. But it's my job to teach my kids the Bible. We had family devotions all the time. I did an Old Testament survey, New Testament survey. I bought an overhead projector for family devotions. <laughs> and that's how godly I am. 
I'm so grateful that my older son rebelled. Because had he not rebelled, I think I'd have felt, I think I'd have been the most self-righteous parent around. Because I've done it right. So where's my sin problem? I mean, I don't have one, right? Well, if Jesus hadn't died, I'd be going to hell. For what? Do you believe this? Do you believe that if you took the purest, holiest five minutes of your life, have you ever had a really good five minutes? <laughs> I mean, not one mean thought, not one gossipy comment, not one thing. That, for five minutes, I mean, you were on top of your spiritual game. And suppose you took that five minutes, and never forget a seminary prof that said this to us, to us in class one day years ago. If you took the very best five minutes you can find in your entire life, your holiest five minutes, and you presented before God and said, God, determine my eternal destiny on the quality of these five minutes, where would you go? Theologically, the answer is you, you, you wouldn't go to heaven. What does the word sin mean? When's the last time you sinned? What's that look like? Tell me how you would define the word sin. Give me a couple. Anything you think, say, or do against the will of God. Define the will of God as you say it that way. I think it's a great answer. What does the will of God mean as you, in the way, context that you've given? Um, that's basically what I was going to say. Trying to live out a holy life, okay. Will of God is to become like, like Jesus and to be formed into his image and become more like Christ as a male or female. And anything we say, do, or think that violates the will of God, I think that's theologically very correct. Do you find that gripping? Something in you that says amazing grace as opposed to, well, of course. Comment back there? Yeah. Not things that you do or don't do on the ex outside the externals, but it's what's happening inside of your heart. All right, you got some good biblical basis for that. The Lord said in Matthew 23, talking to the Pharisees who did everything right outside, and then he said to them, You guys need to clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will become clean as well. But you look good on the outside, and the metaphor the Lord used was you look like a whitewashed gravestone, whitewashed sepulcher. That's attractive as you walk by this whitewashed stone. It looks very nicely painted. But if you look behind the stone, you see rotting flesh and dead men's bones. And so Jesus was saying, you've got to go inside the personality to understand sin. I mean, I really have never had an affair, not into pornography. My outsides are very clean. But how about getting on my insides? What will you discover? Anything else? Focusing on anything other than God. Have you pulled that off for five minutes? Yeah, me neither. Focusing on anything other than God. What does that mean, that, that it's wrong? I mean, have I been, I've been talking to you now for almost a couple hours. Have I, in this, these two hours, been focusing on anything other than God, do you think? So have I been sinning while I'm up here teaching? What does that mean? What do you suppose might be happening in my heart? Get way down into the core of my heart, which the Bible says to do. This is not psychology. This is Bible. Proverbs 20 and verse 5. 
says this, the purposes of a man's heart, not man versus woman, the purposes of a person's heart are like deep waters. Proverbs 20 and verse 5. The real purpose of your heart at any given moment is something you're going to have a hard time seeing. That's what the idea of deep waters is. You get in a little boat, go out into a lake. If it's two feet deep and the water is fairly clear, you can see bottom. No matter how clear the lake is, if you're 50 feet out, you can't see bottom. And the writer of the, Proverbs is, of the Proverbs is saying that the purposes, the real agendas at any given moment in your heart are like deep waters. You can't see them. And the verse ends by saying, but a man of understanding will draw them out. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the, that the heart above everything else is what? Deceitful. It means I don't see what my real agenda is at any given moment. Why is one of the major jobs of the Bible in Hebrews 4.12 that the Bible is a sharp two-edged sword which discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart? What are my real agendas at any given moment? As I'm up, up, here, as I'm up here teaching and sharing with you all, I'm really enjoying this. I just love chatting with you all. I really do. And I believe that is a, a great part of me really wants to encourage y'all. I believe a great part of me wants to represent God well. A great part of me feels a joy in coming here this morning because it's a chance to say some things that might be an encouragement in your spiritual journey. I think all that's alive in me. I really believe that. Is that all that's alive in me? You won't meet a person who, when they're deeply by themselves, does not struggle with some form of insecurity, me included. <laughs> What's insecurity mean? Well, as basic and as simple as, and you all struggle with this, do you like me? Do you feel good about me? What are you going to say when this morning's over? Man, that felt like 10 hours. Or are you going to say, you know, I really think I learned some things. I think I thought about some things. It might have been a worthwhile way to spend my morning. Is there anything in me that wants you to walk out of here at noon saying positive things? Is there anything in me that wants you to say that for my glory versus God's? Well, yeah. That's why I need forgiveness every moment. Because I think I'm more important than God sometimes. I got a problem, folks. And the reason I feel comfortable in telling you I got a problem is you're all the same one. You know what I really hope for this class? I hope that at least in pockets, as you go through CCU together, I hope you become the community of the broken and not the community of the pretenders. Because you're a mess, just like me. First book I wrote, 1975, was called Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling, which I've always thought should have worn a sort of won a, an award for the dullest title in the history of Christian literature. Basic principles of biblical counseling. <laughs> you know. When it came out, I wanted it to be a jazzy title. My first book, I was all excited. A guy named Tom Harris, secular psychiatrist, wrote a book in the 70s called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And I wanted my book to be called I'm a Mess, You're a Mess. I thought it was more biblical. I thought it was interesting, too. And the publisher said, that's a really interesting title, but your book isn't. So let's give your book a more appropriate title for the kind of book it is. It's dull. Let's give it a dull title. So there's truth in advertising. 
but I'm a mess and you're a mess. What's that, what's that really mean? What are my flesh dynamics? Let me give you a little feel for what is going on inside of you because it's going on inside of me, what the Bible reveals to be sin. Think of it this way. Would you all just do this for a moment? Would you all think back to when you were, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere back there, earlier childhood? And ask yourself the question, two questions. Question one, when did you feel best about yourself as a young girl or boy? When could you point to a moment and go, ah, oh, that was the happiest moment of my life. I was so glad to be alive as an eight-year-old girl, so glad to be alive as an eight-year-old boy. I just was as happy as a clam. I, I just feel wonderful. Never thought of clams are happy, but I was just as happy as a clam. I feel really good about myself. And that memory, maybe it's more recent, but this is a memory that sticks in my mind and go, if I could feel like that the rest of my life, man, would I have the abundant life. Just, just think about that. Any, any memory come to mind of when you felt really, really good? Just so happy. I can picture when I was seven years old at Christmas time. My happiest Christmas, I think. We had a lot of good Christmases. I had a good family background. But I could tell you a story about when I was seven and Christmas. Just everything, everything in the world was great. I was just so happy. I felt so good to be alive as a son in this family, a little boy growing up. Now ask yourself a second question. Look back in your life. When have you felt worst about your, your life, about yourself? When have you hurt the most? My wife would talk about her abuse. Some of you would too if you were in a setting where you felt comfortable in saying that. When did you feel really bad about yourself? When did, it, when did life just hurt? And when did you feel, I don't know if I could endure this pain that I feel in my soul as a little boy, as a little girl. I'm not sure if I can endure this pain much longer. I've got to find somebody to get out of this pain. This hurts so bad. Now don't tell me what it was, but how many of you would say that if you thought about it, you could come up with a memory when you felt like that really bad? Ah. And how many come up with memory when you felt really good? Ah, good. Now, when you're in pain, what's your goal? Anybody here at Kidney Stone yet? My hand's up because I've had two. My first one was about seven, eight years ago in downtown hotel in Denver. And I... Woke up at four in the morning with this strange pain I never had had before. I didn't know what it was. But it hurt. And so I made noises appropriate to the occasion. <laughs> Bible talks about oneness in marriage. My wife, I want her to share the moment. Um, <laughs> so I woke her up, and she was, you know, lying. And I'm there, ah! And she, well, what's wrong? And by this time, I'm lying on the floor, rolling. <laughs> Literally. I mean, the pain of a kidney stone is unbelievable. And I was, I, had no, I never had one before, and I was just rolling on the floor saying, I don't know, but this is, I can't get in a position where it stops hurting. And it, so she called 911, they sent an ambulance over, my very first ambulance ride, kind of fun. <laughs> and um, took me to the hospital, put me in a gurney at 4.30 in the morning at a hotel, and rolled me down the thing in the elevator, and Rachel got in the front seat of the ambulance with the driver, and I'm back with a couple of medics, and we're rushing to the hospital, and they're taking information, and they're calling ahead and saying, white male, Caucasian, whatever, you know, about 62. I was 56 at the time, you know. Um, <laughs> and get to the hospital, and the doctor meets us in the emergency room. They wheel me in. The doctor met me at the emergency room, and his first words to me were, we have more medicine than you have pain. 
I wanted to kiss the man. <laughs> I've often wondered, why doesn't God say that? Got him in pain. And he says, yes, welcome suffering. What kind of a doctor are you? <laughs> It'll produce character. Who wants character? I want relief. So y'all can remember a time when you were in pain and when you were in um, feeling really good. Now here's the point I want to make about sin, flush dynamics. Um, one more prefatory comment. Let me tell you why I use the term flesh dynamics. You've probably all heard the term psychological dynamics. In my training as a clinical psychologist, the major part of our studies was to understand psychological dynamics. What are the dynamics? What are the forces? What are the impacts of a little five-year-old girl being abused by her uncle? What's the impact of an eight-year-old boy being homosexually abused by his Boy Scout leader? What's the impact of your dad being an alcoholic and, and maybe a happy alcoholic who just loves to have fun but never knows you deeply? What's the impact of a, of a, of a girl who's, whose dad has never moved toward her in wonderful ways? Not that he's been bad to her, but he's never deeply enjoyed the quality of her soul. What's the impact of all that? And, and psychologists study that. And psychologists say, well, eating disorders come out of parents who move in this particular way. And we do all this psychological dynamic stuff. And, and sometimes if the dynamics are really, really bad, the person can develop multiple personality disorder and can learn to the psychological defense of dissociation and, and begin to say, what's happening to me? It's not me, it's somebody else. So now there's two personalities. And psychologists study psychological dynamics. But there's one big problem with psychological dynamics. Did you follow all that? There's one big problem with psychological dynamics. It assumes the person is innocent. And the dynamics, the effect of the bad parenting and the alcoholism and the abuse and the neglect and the lack of attention to the person, the effect of all this stuff is coming on somebody who's innocent. Rachel was eight years old when her abuse began. I believe the perpetrator of abuse was awful. And I believe she's a victim of what happened to her because of this guy, but I don't believe she was innocent because there's no such thing as an innocent person since the Garden of Eden. There's depravity in the sweet little eight-year-old girl that's being abused by her neighbor. There's depravity. What's that mean? It means that there's something inside of her that's going to look out for herself and minimize the pain and maximize the pleasure, and that's depravity. There's something inside of that cute little girl who's going to say, when I feel really bad, find me a doctor who says I have more medicine than you have pain, and it's not God. This felt wonderful. You know one of the reasons Rachel fell in love with me? Besides the obvious good looks, charm, that kind of thing. I think one of the reasons Rachel fell in love with me, she's talked about it, is because I never pushed myself on her sexually during our dating years. And had I moved toward her in inappropriate ways, I think all the fears that came out of her abuse would have jumped up. That's dynamics. And, and I respected her. And she began to feel the hope of being a little bit safe. And so she began to say to herself, because she's not innocent no more than I am, she began to say to herself, I experienced such pain in my abuse, I felt like a piece of crap. I didn't feel like a sweet little girl. I felt like an awful, exploitable, 
person that nobody could value or love or desire for who I am. They just wanted my body in some perverse way. There was no enjoyment of my soul. And I hated the pain of that. But then I met Larry, and he was respectful and didn't push himself on me and, and kind of wanted me, but he didn't make it happen. And, and I began to feel a little bit safe. And I really liked the feeling. And I moved from feeling pain to feeling some joy and thinking, if I marry this guy, maybe my soul's going to feel joy for the rest of my life. That's flush dynamics. I fell in love with Rachel for a lot of reasons, but one of them was she's really pretty and she's smart and she's fun and personality-wise, and I felt like a loser as a kid half the time. Um, I was pretty insecure. And here's this really neat girl that liked me, and I thought, man, I like the way I feel when I'm around her. I think I'll get married so I can keep on feeling that way. You know what most marriages are built on? Flesh dynamics, mutual manipulation. When we stood before the preacher 38 years ago, and she walked up to Alan, her gorgeous white dress, and I'm coming out, and the tuxedo didn't fit. My pants were short, and I just looked ridiculous. I didn't care. I was getting married. And I walked out and watched her come down the aisle, and, <laughs> you know, and he turned around and faced the preacher, and and he said, repeat after me. And so I, you know, want to raise my right hand, but that wasn't what you do there. And, and I promised to love, honor, and cherish her till death do us part. Do you accept her as your wife? Take her as your wife? Yeah, me, I do, yeah. And Rachel, do you promise to love, honor, and do all sorts of neat things till one of you dies? Yeah, I promise that too. And so we had this wonderful ceremony, and people are crying, and it's wonderful, and we kiss the bride, and, you know, and that's our marriage. Let me tell you what actually happened. When I stood before the preacher 38 years ago, here's what I was saying. Flesh dynamics sin, depravity. Here's what I was saying. I can remember as a kid feeling really good. I got some memories like that. And I have memories of a kid of feeling really bad. I prefer good to bad. I think I know what life is. Life is feeling good. Like when that happened. I know what death is. Death to the soul, not physical death. Death is feeling bad, like when that happened. Huh. I want life. Now that I'm a Christian, God's promised me the abundant life. So I'll never feel that kind of pain. I'll always feel this kind of joy. And Rachel is one marvelous opportunity for me to feel this kind of joy. So as I'm promising to love, honor, and cherish, what I'm really saying to her is, listen here, lady. You made me feel pretty good about myself. I like the feeling. Keep it up. That's why we're getting married. You got that? What she's saying is, Larry, you have no idea about my abuse history. Nobody, not my parents, not my siblings, only the guy that did it and me know about the abuse. And you don't know how that crushed my soul. But knowing you now for the last 8, 10 years, I'm feeling a little bit safe and I'm feeling a little bit of hope of being beautiful as a woman again as opposed to like a soiled rag. I'm feeling a little better about myself and I want to feel that. So here's the deal, Larry. I'm going to marry you. You keep, make, you, you keep being safe for me and make me feel like a beautiful woman the rest of my life. You got that? That's what we were saying beneath the surface. So are your parents. Everyone does. And I call that a tick on a dog marriage. How's that for destroying romance? Y'all know what a tick is? A tick isn't there to bless. A tick is empty looking for a nourishing host. It can sink whatever it has into the flesh and suck the other dry for its own sense of well-being. That's depravity. Another problem in most marriages? I do. I've been a lot of marriage counseling over the years. You know the problem in most marriages? There's two ticks and no dog. 
How's that for romantic too? Think about it. Flash dynamics. This hurt, that's death. I'm going to live to avoid it. You're moving toward depravity altogether. This felt great. That's life. I'm going to move toward it. You're moving toward depravity. That's flesh dynamics. Is that making sense to you? Can you see it? Why does the Bible say there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end there are the ways of death? What's the way that seems right? Why did I sit two days ago with a, a couple married for 20 years and their marriage is dead? And as we sat together for two hours, about an hour and a half, the, the guy said, you know, I have done what I know to do. You know, the flower routine, the helping with the dishes, all the typical stereotypical things. I've done all that. And you know, Larry, let me tell you, this is two days ago, when you do all these nice things and you get indifference as a response, you can't keep it up. And my response is, no, that's true, as long as you're a tick. Why would you stay on, the, on a host that doesn't provide you what you want? And if you're there to get what you want, dump this lady. She's not what you want. Go find somebody else. Heck with the Bible. But if you want to be like Jesus, and you want to reach spiritual formation, and you want to move toward that, you've got to be broken by your flesh dynamics. You've got to say what I've had to say a thousand times over in my marriage, that I'm really demanding right now with a clenched fist, I'm demanding that she respond to me in a given way, that it make me feel the way I know I'm capable of feeling because I felt terrific at different points in my life. Do it again! Now listen to this, some language you'll be offended by, but let me explain myself. Do it again, damn you! What am I saying? If you don't do it, you're worthy of being damned. Why? Because you should be worshiping me. That's horrible, isn't it? Because sin is horrible. No, I've never had an affair and done drugs and pornography and all that, but look what I've done. That's why I need Jesus. Now, what I'm hoping you're going to see, I'll give you another stand-up break in just a minute. What I'm really hoping you'll see, and the three things we have in the little chart so far, is first the, you know, the red dot. Don't have a red pen up here, but there's the red dot. Here's where you are right now as you're beginning your college career. Reflect on that. Where are you? What's going on? What are you scared of? What are you excited about? Where do you feel called of God? Where do you not feel called of God? Where are you confused? Where are you thrilled? This where are you in your spiritual journey? Think particularly about your red dot in terms of your relationships. How do you relate? The issue primarily is not what do you want to do with your life. The issue primarily is how do you relate to people? Because life is all about relationship more than anything else. You know how I know that? Because God exists as an eternal community. He's a trinity of three people. So final reality is not truth. Final reality is not calling. Final reality is not service to God. Final reality is relationship. So how you relate is the most important thing about your life. Not whether you go to medical school or translate in Africa. Those are marvelous things. If that's what God called you to do, do it. But you can go be a translator in Africa. You can go be a top-level physician. And at the end of your life, after years of translating and faithful service to God and years of being a good doctor, your life could be a waste of time because you've never bothered to relate well. 
It's not what you do with your life that matters nearly as much as how you relate. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it. John 17, our Lord's about to die. When you're about to die, apparently you start thinking more clearly sometimes. Now, our Lord always thought clearly, but when he was about to die, remember what he said at the end of his life? He said, Father, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, he said, Father, let me tell you, I'm going to die here in just a little bit. And let me tell you what's on my mind right now. It's consuming my mind, Father. Let me talk to you about it. What's on my mind is, may all the people down through the ages that are going to follow me, may all these people become one with each other the way you and I are one in the Trinity. May they relate the way we relate. So when you think about your red dot, think primarily about the way you relate. Do you stir up somebody else's appetite for Christ by the way you relate? Or are you trying to impress people with your sense of humor? Do you move to people the way Ephesians 4.29 says? Every word you say, let it be for building somebody else up according to their need at the moment. Is that the way you think? I don't either. <laughs> or or is, it, is it, well, I need to prove something right now. And How do you relate? And when you realize how you relate and how self-preoccupied you are, you realize I'm not where I want to be. Quick side note here fellow that gave me permission to talk openly about him, a guy named Tim Burke, Major League Baseball player, all-star relief pitcher, pitched for the Mets, the Twins, and the Yankees, finished his career as a Yankee. was making about $2 million a year, adopted five kids, Christian man, quit his career when he had three or four more years to go, could have made $10 million more, quit it to be a full-time dad. Um, focused on the family, wrote a book on him called uh, Major League Dad. He adopted five kids under God's leading, turned out that his life went from the excitement of being a, a wealthy man, a godly man, a beautiful wife, and now five adopted kids that he was going to provide for and love and nurture in the Christian faith. Turned out that the four oldest kids all had severe reactive attachment disorder. They all got institutionalized. Two of them he had to give up parental rights to. His monthly bill was about 40000 for their treatment. He's now broke. His youngest daughter that he adopted um, was born with, with uh, half of her left arm. Needed surgery at age 10 months. The surgery went bad, left her mentally handicapped. She'll never be more than three years old mentally. She's now 13. The family life has been totally shattered. His life is a ruined mess is what it feels like. He and his wife got in so much tension, he left her for a while. Got drunk, picked up, put in jail for the night. He and I talk about this publicly at our conferences. So again, I'm breaking no confidences. And a mutual friend knew that I lived out here and Tim lived out here. He said, Larry, why don't you get together with Tim? Guy's life's falling apart. His red dot isn't doing so good. And he's losing all his faith in God and this guy needs some spiritual formation. And there's a big problem in his life. He's just demanding, feeling better like he'd felt back in the big leagues. And when he got up in the mound and threw a pitch and made 100 bucks per throw, you know, he was on top of the world and now he's in the bottom of the world and he's, he's just a mess and there's something going on in his soul that needs to change so he can become spiritually formed. So I... I met him for about three or four years at a coffee shop, just sat and chatted once a week, once every couple of weeks, talked for years. <laughs> the point I'm wanting to make, when you examine your red dot, examine how you're relating. When I sat down with Tim Burke, Tim's 6'3", he's very good looking, major league athlete, I played golf with him, he's a great golfer, I'm a very medium golfer, I'm a very medium athlete. And I sat with Tim the first time you know what my red dot was? 
I'm a decent athlete. I, I played tennis. I was on my varsity team in college, and so I'm decent, but I'm not good. Out of fact, I'm really not very good. One time I got mad on the tennis court, threw my racket. The coach walked out, said to me, Larry, you aren't good enough to get mad. Um, my baseball career lasted uh, one game in eighth grade. I made the team, and the, the coach put me in a second base, and the first ball that came to me, I went, th went through my legs. I was so nervous. So I quit the team. That's manhood. That was a bad moment for me. So all my pain is in there. Now I meet Tim, good-looking professional athlete. His life's falling apart. And I was intimidated by Tim Burke. My red dot was, he's a lot of what I wished I were. Not his family life, but I wish I were a top-level athlete, and I'm not. You know what I did, my red dot? I wonder if maybe there's something I'm better at than Tim. I'm pretty good with pitching words. Maybe I can't pitch baseballs, but I can, I got a mouth. And for the first hour of our conversation where I was there to mentor him, spiritually direct him, all I wanted to do was let him know that I'm better at him than something. So I'd pitch words. I'd say things that I knew he wouldn't understand, and I enjoyed the fact that he didn't get it. See some of my flesh going on? See what my red dot is? I don't want to be like that. Tim and I are now the closest of friends. We have great times together. There's been some real movement in my life going from here to here. And I'm along the line a little bit more now. I'm not where I was. I don't try to impress Tim with my words anymore. Spiritual formation. But how do you get there? How do you deal with this? How do you deal with all the junk inside of you so you make some progress towards spiritual formation? That's a question I want to talk to you in our last little segment this morning. How about a stand-up break? Just five minutes this time. And then come on back and I'll finish the chart. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.